You're listening to the sermon audio from Midtree Church. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com. All right, so uh, if you are new uh, to Midtree, we work through books of the Bible, and right now we are working through the book of Exodus. So if you brought your Bible, awesome, wonderful, love for it. We'll always put it up on the screen, but man, I love it when we are holding God's word in our hand. If you did not bring your Bible, if you forgot, or if you don't have one, there's one tucked in the chair. Take it, keep it, uh, mark it up, make it your own. Uh, I, I, I want you guys to have God's word in your hands as much as possible, and then do we have the little Exodus books back there? Or are we out? Did they all get sold? I don't, I don't see any. There's one left. All right, there is one Exodus book left. Uh, and it's this neat little journal. Since we work through books of the Bible, it's convenient. If somebody buys that last one, I'll order more. If nobody does, then that one will be there 10 years from now if you ever want it. All right, so Exodus chapter 4. I was thinking, I don't see Rooster Almond. Is Rooster Almond here? Moody, I see you. It's good to see you again, man. How you been? Yeah. So summer is a time when we typically, as a culture, go on vacation. And just so you know, as a pastor of a new church going through summer, when attendance tends to decline, just so you know, I still love summer. It doesn't bother me a bit. I think it's one of the few things our culture has actually got sort of right, that occasionally we just need to take a break and get away. And that's actually riddled all through God's word. So I hope that you have a great vacation or have one coming up, or you're not bitter if you don't. We can pray for you if you are. But because of vacation, my buddy who I work out with, he's gone this week. I was gone last week. And I was thinking about this because I've been going to the gym by myself or with other people. It's just not the same. It's like being on a blind date. You know where you're going. You know what you're going to do, but you don't know how it's going to play out. And as I was going to the gym this week, I, I was reminded when I was a sophomore in college. I did my undergrad here at CSU. And I, I think I was a sophomore. And I was walking past the, the clock tower in the middle of school. And there were a ton of tents set up. And what they were doing is they were having this like fitness awareness week, and you could get a free t-shirt if you just went and did one rep on a bench press. Now, Will, 20 years ago, was about 50 pounds ago and had never done one rep of a bench press in his entire life, but I tried to do three things in college. Tried to not break up with my girlfriend. That worked out. She's still back there. Uh, I, tried to, <laughs> I tried to pass my classes and make most of them. I did that, and I tried to get as much free stuff as I could without getting a credit card, and I was really good at that, too. And so since they were giving out t-shirts, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, I'll go. I'll go do a rep on a bench press, whatever. So, man, I hate this story. I hate it, but it's so good for this text. So I go, and I didn't know the setup. I thought I was going to go in, do, I didn't even know what you called it, do this motion, and then they were going to give me a t-shirt. And so I went, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you just got to fill this out first. You know, like, if for some reason I die, I'm not going to sue this girl. Okay, fine. All right, and then just put your name here. All right, and very good. So I, I do all of that, and they're like, okay, go do your rep, and we'll give you your T-shirt. So I go, and I get on the bench, do my little rep, rack it, and I go to get my T-shirt. Here's what I didn't know. They were announcing the names and the weights of the people who came as... An encouragement. But guys, I weighed 125 pounds back then. Like, no lie. It's not an exaggeration. So I go, and here's what happened. I'll never forget this. It's so embarrassing. So I go, and they say, Will Hawk, 
192 pounds. I'm sorry about that. Will Hawk, 92 pounds. And everybody starts dying laughing at the guy who goes and benched 92. How did I even put 92 pounds on the bar? I don't even know how you do that. And so they announce it. And, and I'm, I'm so embarrassed because there's so many people and everybody starts laughing. It was guys like Will who were doing like 350, right? And, and I do 92 pounds. But here's the thing that blew me, that, that bothered me. Like when you had it wrong and you said 192 did you have to go back and throw shit? Couldn't you have just left it? Like, who was the punk who was like, oh, I've made a critical error here. And everyone on campus needs to know that this guy only benched 92 pounds. And like, I turned red and I started sweating. I, I don't even know what t-shirt it was. I probably threw it away as I walked away. And I've never forgotten that moment because I never felt so weak and so publicly weak in my life since that, since that moment. But in our text today, in Exodus 4, God takes our natural inclination to put our strengths on display and to tuck our weaknesses away. And instead, he says, in my world, it's going to work very differently. If my spirit is a part of your life, you're going to live life different than the world around you. In fact, not only are your weaknesses going to be exposed I'm going to ask that you allow people to see them. Now, we don't have to advertise. The sermon is not going to turn into tell your neighbor what sin you're struggling with right now. I don't think it's always wise for us to advertise everything. But I do think we have a cultural problem with being ashamed of things that Jesus has not only covered, but would use to display his glory. And I don't want us to miss out. On that, God's word has a lot to say to us this morning. So let me pray. God, I pray that your word would do what it does. We are indeed weak, feeble people. And since Stokes prayed early this morning over the worship team, I have been reminded of how you love to take, thinking of that gospel narrative, a little boy with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and feed a multitude. And so, Father, I pray in this little bit of time, with this little bit of heat and a little bit of distraction, you would still see fit because your word is amazing to feed us really well. And for some of us, that may be encouragement. For some of us, it may be conviction. For some of us, it may be wrestling. For some of us, it may be introspection and asking ourselves questions. Who am I and where am I really? But God, I do know this. Every time we come to you, you feed us. And every time you feed us, we leave better off than we came. And so I truly believe this, that regardless of whether we feel joyful or we feel lamentable, we can leave this place. Every person here, hearing my voice and hearing your word, we can leave knowing that there is a God who loves us, that there is a God who rescues us, that there is a God who wants to take our weakness and turn it into strength, that there is a God who would have us leave filled with his spirit this morning. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 4. As you're looking down there, let me, just re- let me just remind you, when we ended Exodus 3 last week, Moses had asked God a couple of questions. In uh, chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go? And God's answer to him is, doesn't matter who you are, I will be with you. Then a couple of verses later in verse 13 and 14, Moses asked him another question. If I go to your people to do this thing you're asking me to do, and they say, who has sent you? What am I supposed to tell them? 
And God says, I am who I am. And he says, tell them my name that I am has sent you. Now, that's important to know. He's asked God two questions. And God has been happy and faithful to answer those questions. As we start in Exodus chapter 4, Moses has a couple other questions for God. Starting in verse 1. Moses, I completely missed my mouth with the water trying not to get it on my shirt. Now I've spilled it on myself. I was going for this side so I didn't hit the microphone. All right, here we go. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, he's talking about the people that God is sending him to Egypt to rescue. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. There's an entire sermon in this, how God will take the most common things and do incredibly uncommon things. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's an incredible image for us. Verse 3. And he, God said, throw it on the ground. So he, Moses, threw it on the ground, and it, his staff, became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. I love these next words in verse 5. It's, God didn't even explain. He just says, that they may believe. Here's what I love about this scene. I feel like sometimes we look back on people in the Bible as though they're the way sitcoms today typically treat husbands, that everyone is just this bumbling buffoon trying to like, the disciples are so dumb and all this kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. God is happy to show the weaknesses of everybody outside of himself in his word. But Moses is kind of a, a, a beast in this moment. He was an educated guy. He grew up in the area. And so when he throws that staff down and it turns into a snake and it says he ran from it, I'm willing to bet it wasn't a little green garden snake. My guess is it wasn't a little clip art cartoon. Oh, that, you are just adorable. I think when Moses threw that down and all of a sudden this miracle happened, he was running partly because he was like, whoa. But I think he was legitimately running because the snake was scary. He was like, that's a man killer kind of a snake. And I want to give Moses the credit that God is about to ask him to do something big. But before God gets him to do something big, he has to do something that's big, but it's a whole lot smaller, which is walk up to this snake that is probably poisonous and could kill you and grab the thing by the tail. And Moses does it. And I think we should give him credit for being faithful in doing that. So he grabs that snake by the tail and it turns back into a staff. And in verse 5, God says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. But God's not done. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, most of you, if you grew up in the church, have heard about leprosy. We see it all throughout the New Testament. Jesus heals it in the New Testament. If you remember seeing the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom, the, the, one of the kings wore this metal mask. And the reason he wore it was because he had leprosy. It's been basically cured in our day. But leprosy would painfully, slowly eat your skin away so that muscle and bone and everything showed. And it would eventually kill you, but it didn't do it quickly. Additionally, it was... It was insanely contagious to the point that if you contracted it, all of a sudden, if mom gets this one white spot on her, her relationship with her husband is forever changed, with her children is forever changed, with her family. She doesn't live with them, does not do life with them. She is ostracized from society. So Moses puts his hand in, pulls it out, and all of a sudden is cursed with disease. But then God tells him, again, the Lord said, 
put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he pulled it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. God's still not done. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, here's the thing. I can't relate to, gra- I can't relate to grabbing a steak by the tail. In fact, I tried to do it a week ago. I didn't think about that. We were, we were on a hike. I can't relate to a stick turning into a snake. I can't relate to disease, being healthy, then being diseased, then being healthy again. And I certainly can't relate to blood coming out of water. But you know what I can do? I can relate to wanting God to give me a sign. I can relate to saying, okay, God, if this Christian life is going to be as hard as your word says it is, I need to know that I know that I know that you are going to be with me and what you are calling me to, you're not going to leave me alone and you are going to show up. But I want to caution us. God will at times give us signs, but he will also protect us from them. Because many times we're much more interested in the giver of the sign than we are the giver. Many times, and we see this in our prayer life, many times we're more interested in the gift that was given than the one that gave it. And that is not how God wants his relationship with his children to be. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24 kind of plays this out for us. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. You see, God is giving Moses these signs, and at the same time, he's saying, signs are not the thing you should be coming to me for. The greatest sign that I can give you is I came and lived as you. I gave my life for you. And logic is not going to work here. Greeks seek wisdom. They seek logic. But here's the thing. God dying for you. God dying for me is not logical. God leaving me in my sin and being righteous, that's logical. And so when God steps away, I think what he wants us to recognize is, I think it's awesome when God answers our prayer in such a way that increases our faith. I think God loves to do it. I think when God gives us signs, uh, somebody sends us a scripture or a prayer, hits us just the right way, or any number of things. I I just met somebody and... uh, They said, it's so funny that I'm meeting you because I just said it would be such a godsend if such and such happened. And then a pastor came to my front door. And I was like, yeah, God's kind of cool, isn't he? But the point isn't the sign. It's the one who gives it. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to me. You haven't changed me. I've, I've never really had the best words. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? This is Moses' last question that God puts up with. And when I say it puts up with, God is meeting him because if you think about it, Moses is actually being very humble. He's saying, who am I? And God's saying, you're the one that I've called. Moses is saying, well, what am I supposed to tell people? And God says, I'll tell you my name. Tell them that I have sent you. He says, well, how are they going to believe me? And God says, I'm going to give you proof. And Moses says, I'm not even good at the thing you're asking me to do. And God said, I made you for this task. This is one of the things that I think is very hard in our culture. We want the best to be doing what they're best at. God could have picked Aaron. In fact, later in our text, God's going to say, hey, here comes Aaron over the hill. I know that he speaks well, 
But God intentionally picked somebody who was bad at something to do that very thing. And, and, and for some reason, here is what I think Christians say, and all we're really doing is putting this out-of-context Bible verse on it when we say, that's not really my gift. Well, neither was speaking for Moses. God isn't always asking you to serve out of your greatest giftedness. Sometimes he's going to ask you to serve out of your greatest weakness. And that may actually serve you significantly more. But now it changes. Moses has asked four questions and God has seen fit. Verse 12. Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. And it's about to change in verse 13. But Moses said... Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And I think the heart of Moses' previous four questions are summed up in this. Does it have to be me? Do I have to be the one that lives in this family? Do I have to be the one that works at this church? Do I have to be the one who's serving in kids ministry on the day of baby dedication? Like, why does it have to be me? But God says, because I picked you. And I picture knowing exactly who you were and where you would be. Verse 14. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled. And here's why. Moses has moved from being humble, which God is completely cool with and loves. He's moved from being humble in himself to humiliating God. See, there's a very thin line between not thinking too much of yourself and not thinking God is able to use someone like yourself. It's a very, very thin line. I, I honestly think one of, one of the best takeaways that we could have from this scripture is the next time you have a decision to make, I, I hope that you pray, I hope that you talk to community, I hope that you study God's word. But the next time you have a big decision, maybe ask God. Maybe ask yourself, am I saying no to this out of my own fear or humility? Am I saying no because I'm humble and I recognize this is not a good thing or because I'm actually humiliating God who would use me in my weakness? I think it's a good question to ask. Nick, if you would throw this up. Point number one. When we attempt to cover our weakness, we simultaneously attempt to cover God's grace and power. When we attempt to cover our weakness... We simultaneously, it happens in tandem. There, there's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? A, a correlation. There is a correlation between us attempting to cover our weakness and us simultaneously attempting to cover God's grace and power. And I specifically put grace and power. And let me tell you why. Because it's different if you're a Christian than if you're not. And there are probably both people represented here. If you are not a Christian, when you hide your weaknesses... You are covering up the grace that God wants to show you. There is only one way to come to God, humbly. Nobody comes to God and says, you are so lucky to have me on your team. You don't even know how much I'm going to change this church. You don't even know how I'm going to husband my wife. You don't even know how much I'm going to love my This business is going to be so different now that I'm here. God, you are so fortunate to have me. Those people get struck by lightning. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Hey, Shimmers, I'm glad you're here. I'm pretty sure those are the ones. I, that, that's just not how we come to God. But in reality, the way that we come to him is the exact same way his people came to him in Exodus. 
They get to the point where they look around. They've been enslaved for 400 years. They throw their hands up and they just say, help, help. I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not able enough. Somebody else has to step into this junk and get me out of here. That is the first and most beautiful prayer. And if you are not a Christian, if you're checking out church, that is your prayer this morning. And you don't even have to listen to anything else I say. It can just be Charlie Brown's mom up here for the rest of the time. If you close your eyes, if you walk out the back and you just say, God, I am weak and I need you, man, that would be a beautiful thing for you to begin having a conversation with God. Believers, when you hide your weaknesses, you are simultaneously covering up God's power in your life. So many times we want to push these things behind when God wants to put his finger on those things because they are the most able places for him to display his glory. Let me show you what I mean. I, I would recommend John 9. If you, if you do a quiet time at night, John chapter 9 would be a wonderful one for you to read this evening before you to go, go to bed. Bruner, good luck because I'm about to summarize the chapter in two minutes. In John chapter 9, Jesus walks up to a man who was born blind. He'd lived in that city his entire life. And Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples look at him and they say, okay, we got this blind guy here. Quick theology question for you, Jesus. Who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? Which, by the way, good theology, we are born in sin. But that's not really the main uh, point of that scripture. They're saying, look, this guy was born in weakness. Who sinned that made it happen? Was it him? Did you see some sin coming down the road that he would commit? Or was it his parents? And Jesus' answer is astonishing. He said, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes some mud, puts it on his eyes. He goes and washes and comes back seeing miracle. And then this guy becomes one of my favorite people in the entire New Testament. Paul, I love you, but I really want to hang out with this guy in heaven. I don't know his name. He's just going to have a little sign that says the man who once was blind, right? Like, and I'm going to be like, you're the guy I want to hang out with. I love this guy because he's, he's like a righteous jerk to righteous jerks, okay? Just hold for it. It's awesome. So they, they begin asking questions. How are you healed? How are you healed? And he says, Jesus, the, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and I could see. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. We don't work. We don't heal. We don't do things on the Sabbath day. So in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, talking about Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He's a lawbreaker. How could he be from God? But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Why were they amazed that this man had been healed? Because a man did it. Jesus, who was fully God, is also fully man. And it was because we know our weakness to be able to... There are so many medical professionals in this room. If you had the ability to touch someone and heal them, it would revolutionize and change the world. But God has left us in our weakness to love people to the best of our ability. This stands out because no man can do this. Jesus, from everyone looking at him, looks like just a normal man. That can't be. He's too weak. He's a regular guy. So they go to his parents, and they're like, Mom, Dad, tell me what's up. What's up with this, this young adult guy that says he was blind, and now he can see? And they don't want a piece of it. They're like, hey, he's grown. We kicked him out of the house. Little failure to launch issue. He does have some needs, but whatever. Like, you need to go and talk to him. They did that because they were scared. 
they didn't want to tell them what they knew because the religious leaders could have changed their life, kicked them out of church for saying these things. And here's where my favorite part comes. They go to the blind. Well, he's not a blind man anymore. They go to the man who is blind halfway down verse 24. We know that this man is a sinner. And the man born blind said, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. I don't know who Jesus is. Hey, just a heads up. I've never met the guy. I never saw him, right? I was blind when he came up to me and then I had to leave. Then I could see and he wasn't there. So I've never really met the guy. All I know is yesterday it was dark and today it's really pretty outside. That's all I know. And here's what happens. They keep asking him, well, why, how, how did this, blah, blah, blah. Halfway down verse 27. Why do you want to hear me say this again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they revile him saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know, check this out, church reading through Exodus, we know that God has spoken to Moses. So, spoiler alert, what God is doing in Moses right now in Exodus, thousands of years later, they are pointing back to and saying, without a shadow of a doubt, God spoke to Moses. So, spoiler alert, it's going to go well for Moses if he trusts God, and he's going to trust God. But this guy gets crazy bold, and here's why. He's bold because he was weak. If he had never been born blind, if he had never been born into that weakness, this boldness would not exist in him. But he was blind and now he sees. What's he going to do but tell people? What's he going to do? Not be excited about it? So he goes on. I love this. Verse 30. The man answered. Well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he, Jesus, comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will... God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He looks at him, he says, this is an amazing thing. You're the most religious people here. You've got all the answers. And you're asking me questions? You don't understand what's happening? This is phenomenal. Maybe you should become his disciples. And they get all sorts of angry. And here's what they say. They answered, you were born in utter sin. And we go right back to the beginning of John chapter 9. Their conclusion, because he put the ruler up to them, is that, no, you actually were born a sinner. And it doesn't matter if you can see or not. You are still a sinner. Why was this man bold? He was bold because of his weakness. Jesus does this with, with leprosy in Matthew 8. He goes to a leper and the leper, uh, act, no, the leper goes to him, which was all sorts of wrong. Like he's putting tons of people at risk. And he goes to Jesus and this beautiful prayer, he says, if you will, you can make me well. And Jesus says, I will. Go, you are well, be healed. And that's exactly what happens. And he ends that little session in verse four. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing. Well, wait a minute. Isn't our weakness supposed to be put on display? See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus saying, I don't want you running through the streets. Because it's not about the miracle of the sign. It's about the one who does the miracle. So go, show the priest. Let your weakness be known so that my strength is seen. And Paul understood this fully. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. 
Paul talked to Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. He saw incredible things. We read about them all in the New Testament. And he says, so that I didn't become conceited, God gave me a thorn. We don't know what that was. And he asked, God, will you take this away? I pleaded with him three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, red letters, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. When we hide our weaknesses, we miss out on the grace and the power of God. God made you with your strengths as well as your weaknesses. And he loves you just as much in your weakness, probably more than he does in your strengths. What this means is that we need to fight that universal impulse to hide our weaknesses. I already mentioned that that's exactly how God's people came to him in Exodus and how we do now. I, I teared up this morning. Uh, Stokes, we, we were praying, and he said, Will, is there anything that you want to share? And I didn't mean to, but Stokes is such a great example of humility. If you want to talk about humility on our leadership team, Stokes is the guy. He comes up here every week, can't sing that well, can't play that well, and we... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You're great. I love you. I wouldn't even know. That's one of the greatest gifts I can give you. I don't know if you sound good or not. I, I hear that you do from other people. But Stokes is one of the most incredibly humble men, and he constantly puts his weakness on display. I mean, I'm not really good at this, or this isn't my strong suit, but if it'll serve the church, if it'll help you, then yeah, I'll do that thing. I, I think about the mom who's trying to get their kid to camp or get their kid to school, and you're trying to pack all the snacks, but you forgot some, and oh, does somebody have a gluten allergy? Now I got to go back by Sam's. I didn't have any time to put on my makeup. You walk in, and they're like, you're here two days late. And it's just like, I can't get my life together. And here's the deal. I'm not saying don't keep a calendar, and I'm not saying don't care about people. What I am saying is, it's okay to look somebody in the eye and say, man, I'm just having a really hard day. It is okay as a Christian who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ to say, I'm not doing well today. It's a good thing for us to look at one another and say, I feel broken here. Will you pray for me? That's exactly what Jesus became for us. Weak. We shouldn't underestimate his example. Husbands, this is us sharing our feelings with our wives. It's having words at the end of the day for them. It's asking our wives, how are you feeling? How can I pray for you? It's parents repenting to their kids. Not because we have to, but because we get to set this example for them. It'll deepen our trust in God if we don't run away from our weaknesses. Back to the text. So the anger of the Lord was kindled, but he loves him. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. I'm in verse 14, by the way. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. I'm already preparing him for the thing that you were scared about. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. This is unique in salvation history. God is saying, Moses, you're going to be the stand between. You're going to be the go-between between me and Aaron, between me and Pharaoh, between me and my people, between me and the world, just as Jesus is going to be the much more perfect, the willing to be weak and take on flesh, stand between, between me and all who want to know me 
and truth. This is unique. Moses went back. Oh, and he tells him to take his staff. Verse 18. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt. All the men who are seeking your life are dead. I've cleared the path. I have opened up the sea to give you an easy route. Everybody who wanted to kill you, convicted murderer who deserved to die, they're dead. All right? I don't know if it was natural causes or if they were those haughty people that get struck by lightning. I don't know how that played out. But God made sure that it was clear. So Moses took his wife, verse 20, and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. And they went back to the land of Egypt, by the way, just like we read about Jesus. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, there's a lot for us in these next two sentences. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. I know you're weak. I've called you anyway. I've equipped you because of my power in your weakness. When you stand before Pharaoh, don't be fearful. Do what I told you to do. <laughs> but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We read this as people who read a Bible and we're like, oh, okay, uh, what? God, I have not been, I'm speaking as Moses here, I have not been the easiest recruit into your army of soldiers, okay? I have a whole lot of doubts about who I am. And a lot of them are really well-founded. In fact, all four of them that I brought up to you you were kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're kind of a non-good speaker, murderer, I don't know. You're right. Maybe using you is an unusual thing to do. But the moment Moses says, can you just find somebody else? God gets angry and he's like, look, you're now doubting me, not you. But then after encouraging him and saying, look, I'm going to be with you. I'll give you Aaron. I'm going to support you. God says, all right, so go. You got the staff. You got these miracles. You're equipped, man. Go and knock this thing out. Oh, 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 oh. And I'm not going to let it work for you. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that when you throw that staff down, he's like, whatever. And when you start making blood out of water, he's going to be like, not a big deal. Why, God, would you do that? Like, I'm already on the verge of not going. And now you're telling me that you're intentionally going to make this harder than it has to be. Why? Because if God wants us to fight the universal impulse to hide our weaknesses, it is most likely because losing is often a prerequisite to winning. In the kingdom of God, the reason God wants us to operate out of our weaknesses is because it shows his strength and he wants us to lose sometimes because losing is often a prerequisite for winning. Consider that God is not just okay losing a battle to win a war. It's exactly what Jesus did. He lost the battle on the cross to win the war of eternal life for all who come to him. God may have already put in the cards for you to lose and it have nothing to do with what you have done. God may already have in the cards for your tomorrow a difficult, devastating loss. Let me stand over here. It might be because you're a sinning doofus. That is true. All right? 
You go and do stupid stuff, there are consequences for that. But that is not the only reason bad things happen in the world. The man was not born blind because of his sin or because of his parents. Sometimes difficulty happens because God needs us to be weak. Sometimes difficulty happens because our loss is a prerequisite for us to win. That changes the way you look at whatever difficult circumstance you're in or you find yourself in. If you're not a believer, this is beautiful news. If you're not a Christian, what an incredible message the Bible gives you that you don't have to look right. You don't have to be cleaned up. You don't have to stand up straight. You don't have, your life, have to have your life all together. Jesus loves losers. In fact, if we look at the Bible, he loves losers way more than he loves winners. If you feel like you have lost at life, Jesus loves people like you. And spoiler alert, it's all of us. Some of these people just look really good. But you ask them about seven questions and you realize, I know y'all pretty well, everybody in this room is a loser, okay? And that's why we're like, Jesus, I need you. And he becomes the win. I think about this for marriages that are in strife. And I don't mean somebody left their boots out. I mean, you've been arguing for a decade about that same stupid thing. What if the weakness of your marriage for a decade or more is the very thing that God wants to leverage that you would see his strength? I never thought that my wife and I would blank. I never thought that my kids would blank. I was so sure that I was stuck in this prison, that I was chained to this, that it was never going to improve or get better. And why would I think that it would? It was 20 years of this. And God says, do you realize that those two decades, which are a snap in the time that I am in control of, was setting you up for a win so that the rest of your days and all eternity, you would look back and say, God did something that was so beyond myself or my wife to do. All I can do is praise him. There was a little bit of that last night. Uh, Todd and Gwen, y'all just had your 20th wedding anniversary. Praise God for that. Worth celebrating. And they were sharing with each other last night their vows to one another and their thank yous of how God has shown up in ways where they were weak. And I'm sure that y'all have plenty of testimonies of that. So go and ask them. That'll be fun. All right. I think about Carol Roselle. Um, they're going to be joining the church here soon. They just had their first baby. She's from Canada. And she wanted to take her baby to her family so that they could see the, the new family that God had created. And customs kept saying no. Maybe it's not customs. Immigration, I don't know what it is. They were like, no, you're not. It's not going to happen. It was the biggest prayer request of theirs for month after month after month. But I would be willing to bet that if you went to her now, she would say, I have a testimony of God's grace. Not just that that difficulty worked out and I can see his power, but that I grew through that difficulty. I think about last week praying with somebody who had a sickness scare. And in a room this size, there's sickness scares happening all the time. I don't like those things. But I love watching people be more dependent on God than they ever have in their life. And by God's grace, he showed up. And I got a phone call three days later. And that individual said, God showed up in a big way. I'm not going to have to have surgery. I'm not going to have to quit my job. I'm not going to have to do. God loves to help us walk through losses and will set them up ahead of time. I'll give you one more application of this truth. It's amazing for a church like us. Because when you know that in the cards of the Christian is a loss that is coming, 
it allows you to rejoice with people because you realize your loss is not necessarily always on you. So when someone gets pregnant, when somebody gets a promotion, when somebody goes on a first date and then another first date and then another first date and you finished Netflix, you're like, I'm out. <laughs> I somehow got to the end of it. You're able to say that this difficulty that I am in may have nothing to do with my sin or my brokenness, but in some way God is going to use it for his glory that I would see his power and his grace. Be encouraged. All of your losses are not on you. Appreciate the win, but learn the lesson through the losses. I close this with these last two verses. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It's the first time he says it in the entire Bible. It's the first time he says in human history that God's people are his children. You're my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's what Moses is going to tell Pharaoh. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill. I will take your firstborn if you will not let mine go. Amidst all of the weakness, amidst all of the brokenness, amidst the near guarantee that difficulty is coming that has nothing to do with whether or not you have been obedient. What's up, chicken? Amidst all of those things is this incredible truth that God looks at his people as his dearly loved children. And Hosea shows us this. This is how he puts it. Stokes, you can go ahead and come on up. Hosea 11, 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is what we're reading right now in Exodus. I led them. He's not talking about his son Jesus. He's talking about his son Israel. He's talking about his son the church. He's talking about his son the people. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, he's talking about you here. He's saying, I loved him. I led him out of Egypt. I led him out of weakness. I led him out of difficulty. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. The connotation is of a little kid who's trying to learn how to walk that's wearing some overalls. And God takes his super strong index fingers and he slides them right inside those overalls and he just supports that little toddler as he's beginning to take those first steps. God reaches down to his children and he says, you're so weak and I love you for it. Let me be the one who holds the strain. Let me be the one who takes the pain. I want to hold you as you take those first steps. It's the connotation of a shepherd with his sheep. That isn't behind it with a whip or a cattle prod, but is leading it gently by the stirrup, by the rein, with, um, when it's not tight. When a rope isn't tight, slack. It's, it's God, hey, I'm out of words. God knows it. I need to wrap this thing up. It's God leading his sheep with slack in the line. Because his relationship with them is so fatherly. Because their relationship with him is so loving that they gently walk slowly, step in step, and don't have to be ripped across a pasture. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. As we close, as we worship, 
I just want to remind us, God opposes the proud. Every one of us in a job interview quickly turns into Michael Scott. Let me tell you what my weaknesses are. I work too hard and I care too much. No, no, you don't. You're weak. And God knows that you're weak. But in that weakness, his strength is put on display. So Christian, don't be ashamed of your weakness. Put it on display and watch as God uses it. If you're not a Christian, God opposes the proud. But if you will humbly say, God, I am too weak. My sin is too great. My hope is too small. My ability is a joke. He will meet you where you are and he will rescue you from your sin. Father, that is my prayer. You are an incredible God. We don't deserve the grace that you have given us just in this morning. We don't deserve the grace of music that's being played over us. We don't deserve the grace of good truth that your word gives us. We don't deserve the moving of your spirit that you bring to us. Man, you love your kids. And you reach down and you lead them step by step. You leave slack in the rope, as Larry talked about, humbly walking us, even though you know we should be so much further than we are. And you look at the one who is opposed to you, and you say, lay down your burdens. Repent. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Pray all of this in Christ's name.